And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Joe Holmesy, who during his near-death experience communicated with two spiritual guides, and today we're going to learn about it. Joe, thank you so much for being my guest today, and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. really appreciate it. All right, Joe, if you don't mind, let's start on the day that the accident happened and go from there. Okay, I was uh, literally on my way home from Sunday services. I was on Interstate 75, just north of Atlanta, uh, and I was exiting off the Marietta Loop, if anybody's familiar with that area. And as I, I'd slowed down to about 60 miles an hour, and suddenly I was hit from behind. The left rear side of my car was hit, and it sort of spun me around. I was hit very, very hard, uh, extremely hard. Uh, my car got turned around, and it started to flip over, and it flipped over and over. Actually, a witness said that it flipped over about four or five times. But in any case, I, I knew there's no way I could live. I knew how fast I was going. I knew I was going to going into a role. I knew I wasn't going to live. So I asked God, I said, well, and I'm a firm uh, knower so much, so to speak, about reincarnation. And I asked, well, please don't have me relearn everything all over again. My next lifetime, could I just take everything that I've learned and take it with me and at that moment a a a tunnel of sorts sort of like a whirlpool appeared it was sort of orangish and brown in color and it had a little bit of a spiral to it and at the end of that whirlpool tunnel i could see a bright warm loving perfect light i had seen that light before when i was a small child so i knew what it was And I was very happy, very content. I hadn't felt any pain whatsoever. So I just moved through the tunnel and I went into the light. Now, people have asked me, you know, to describe the light. And there there really isn't any words to describe the beauty or the perfection or the love. But it was immensely warm, immensely loving. And got it in sort of a kind of a an inference that okay okay you have to go back so i i all of a sudden i popped back into my body now i don't know how long i was gone i really don't know all i know is when i woke up when i opened my eyes i was lying face down in the back seat of my car my head was down onto the seat my feet were somewhere up around the the, the uh, steering wheel. And I thought to myself, wow, I didn't die. I'm here. and it, there, I don't even feel any pain. And then I tried to move. And when I tried to move, nothing worked. I was absolutely paralyzed from the chin down. And I thought, oh, boy, uh, I'm paralyzed. I can't feel anything. Uh, I probably have internal injuries or some kind of a problem that I can't feel. And I figured, well, I guess I am going to die here. I just, I'm, I thanked God for allowing me to die without pain. And that went on for, I don't know, a minute or two. I don't, I don't know how long it was. But in any case, I felt myself sinking who I was sinking out of the bottom of my body and out of the car and that kind of stuff. And suddenly there was a tap on the window where the car, I don't know what it was. I heard a tapping and a woman's voice said, are you okay? And I said, I'm paralyzed. Uh, Call the police, call the ambulance. And then I realized I was able to talk. And I thought, well, if I can talk, then maybe it's, it's worth living. So that started a whole series of, of things. I could hear, you know, ambulance sirens, and they were people trying to you know, uh, 
I was trapped inside the car. There was no way that the paramedics could get to me. And apparently I kept drifting off into an unconscious state because the one guy kept saying, stay with us now, stay with us. And this went on pretty much, I would guess, for about an hour or so. Uh, they eventually brought in some kind of big, I was down over a big bank and you couldn't drive to where I was at. They had to walk in and they brought some kind of a saw and they sawed the roof off of my car and they had some big beam. Um, I don't know what it was. They brought me, literally wrapped it underneath me and they took me out of the top of my car and it was a, uh, I was on a string or like a wire of some sort and they lifted me up. And when I looked down, I don't know if I was in my body or out of my body at that time, but I looked down, I could see my car. I could see the roof taken off. I could see all the blood on the back seat of the car. And when they set me down, uh, the, there was a life flight helicopter was already there and they were on the ground and they set me down and they sort of straightened me out a little bit. And it was a guy right over top of me and I could see about six or seven people in orange jumpsuits. And he looked down at me, he says, you're going to be okay. And I said, oh, okay. And then a woman's voice spoke up and she said, have you made arrangements to donate your organs? And I looked and I, well, this is, I said, yeah, it's on my driver's license. And the guy that was right above me, I could see him turn and stare at this woman like, you know, don't say something like that right now or something to that effect. And then another woman's voice spoke up and said, have you, are you, a, you have a living will? And I said, well, no. And I looked up at the guy and I says, I guess I'm in deep shit, huh? And, uh, he says, no, you're going to be fine. Well, they, uh, they gave me an IV right there at the scene of the accident. They put an IV in me and they loaded me into the helicopter. And it was about probably 10 to a 15 minute ride. I went to the, they took me to the Atlanta medical spinal trauma unit. And I remember part of the trip, but I, I guess I was going in and out of consciousness. Some of some of the stuff I didn't remember. And I got to the ER, and again, they asked me if I was going to donate, if I could donate my organs. And they took me to the CAT scan and MRI, and they asked me the same questionnaire, and they put me in a room, a big room, and it was a whole bunch of people in there, a lot of, uh, a lot of doctors. I don't know. I couldn't tell maybe six or eight or ten. It was just a bunch of them around. And my body had hadn't moved or anything at all and there was somebody else there who they were treating too and I don't know if it was an orderly or a nurse or whatever but it was a male and he said doc doctor look at this guy he's start he's vibrating and what was happening is the IV that they gave me was actually it was introduced in wasn't so much introduced it was promoted by Christopher Reeves after he went through all his stuff. And what it does, it sucks all the sodium and fluid out of your body. This IV does. And it's a 24-hour drip. It can't go any further than that. And during that first 24 hours, apparently I lost 35 pounds because it sucks everything out of you. But in any case, uh, my body, okay, I can start feeling pain. And it's like, jagging needles they start in it goes in your muscle groups and i could see it i could look down over my chest and i could see my chest vibrating and i could see my legs vibrating and they started to literally i was convulsing my and i had no control over it whatsoever but it was apparently a pretty hideous scene it's almost like something that you see in a the exorcist film where the, the girl's going all crazy and stuff like that and that's what I was going through. And the one doctor, apparently the head neurosurgeon, says, everybody come over here. I want you to see this. This happens in 
serious spinal cord injuries. Everybody come over. I want you to watch everything happens here. And, uh, and he said, uh, get him some fentanyl, give him the maximum dose, uh, keep him comfortable and give it to him every hour. And they did that and two seconds, probably a minute later, I got wheeled into another room. And when I went into that other, and they took me in that other room, it was real high ceilings, a lot of medical equipment up to my left. There was some observation windows and, uh, I went in there and apparently what that room was, the organ transplant team was called in and they were the ones that were watching behind it. They were waiting for me to die so they could take my organs because I had said I was an organ donor. And, uh, I was in there as crazy as this might sound. I was in there for about 14 hours and I would get a syringe full of fentanyl in my IV every hour on the hour. And it would last for the the pain would last for the relief. I can't say it's the pain went away. It just, the pain was reduced. Okay. It would last about, half hour, 45 minutes, and then then I would start into this convulsion thing. And it would start all over again. So what I did, uh, I had been studying spiritual stuff for many, many years, a couple decades, several decades, in fact. So I started singing a love song to God. And it's a simple sound. It's like, very simple. It's something I learned a long time ago. And what you do is you, you know, whoever or whatever you believe, I don't care if it's Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or whatever spiritual guide that you think is for you. If you do that and you sing that song with love, it's a very, very old, ancient sound. It's, you know, it goes way back tens of thousands of years of different places I've did a lot of research and study on this, but I would sing you and it would calm me down a little bit. And I would literally start to leave my body and I would go and I could see the light. That was actually the doorway of that beautiful, bright, warm, loving light. And there were two, I call them spiritual guides. You can put any label on that you want, but I could see them there. And they were at the doorway or the portal, I guess you might say. And they said, you can go and you can leave and you can stay without pain forever and ever. Or you can go back if you want. But if you go back, you have to understand you're going to be experiencing lots of pain, incredible, excruciating pain. And four times that night, um, it started in late late in the evening and then it went through the or the wee hours of the morning four times that night I actually left and the nurse who was watching over me uh his name was Michael and I could see him in this observation window and occasionally different people would come in and start talking to him they would point to me I could see them and they were I guess trying to figure out why I wasn't dying mm-hmm. and you know Michael would come out to me and he would leave his his uh, observation window and come over and stand beside my bed. And he would say, what are you saying? What are you doing? Nobody can do what you're doing. Why? How do you do what you're doing? You're, you know, it was almost like he's saying, you're, you're supposed to die, but you're, <laughs> you're not dying. And it was, uh, I was sort of dying in a way because I was leaving my body and I was going into the light. And then I was coming back and that happened four times during the night. Now the, uh, uh, at some time around between six and seven o'clock, I don't remember exactly when, uh, I was wheeled out of that operating room and they put me in, in a private intensive care room. And that's when the biggest miracle happened. Uh, there was a, you know, I could see the clock on the wall. And I was used to watching these clocks because I would, that's when I would get my my fentanyl shot. But I looked 
and it was seven o'clock because of five after. So I called out for Michael. Well, there was no Michael. He apparently his shift was over. Uh, worked in a different part of the hospital. I don't know what happened, but there, a lady nurse came in, a young nurse, and she says, what, what can I do for you? And I says, I, I need my pain stuff, that fentanyl. And he's, you know, I was, I had to, you know, I couldn't move. It was, you know, the only thing I could move was my mouth. And she says, oh, well, I can't give you something like that without strict doctor's orders. That's very powerful stuff. And I said, well, you know, I, I need it for my pain. She says, well, well, what's your pain on a scale of one to 10? And I said, 10. I was just said it very quietly. I said, 10. And she says, oh, I don't believe that. You're telling me this is the worst pain in your life? You, but if, she just turned around and walked out of the room. And uh, I was really angry. Incensed would be a good word for it. Uh, you know, the, the, that kind of pain is just, you know, there's no way to describe it. And it was escalating because when it, you don't get that medicine, it just, it multiplies and it multiplies. And my body started going these convulsions. So I started to sing you again. And whenever you sing you, you have to do it with love. Um, and you have to be, love is a gift. It's something that you have to give. And my anger at this nurse was preventing me from getting into that loving state. And I couldn't leave my body. I stayed in my body because I was angry. And it took me about, I think about 15 or 20 minutes to realize that, you know, the reason I couldn't leave my body and get to the light, because I was going to go, I was going to stay. That was my plan. But the reason I couldn't get there was because I was angry. So I not only had to forgive that nurse, I had to be grateful for her participation in my soul journey, so to speak. And that took a lot of inner stuff. You know, I can't describe it, but I got to the point where I was grateful for her participation in my journey. And when I did that, the pain by that time, I felt like I was on fire. It literally felt like I was on fire. And the sound of hue and the pain and all that was like a blinding white light. Okay. And all of a sudden I was gone. And uh, about an hour and a half later, I popped back into my body. The nurse had given me a syringe full of the fentanyl. And I don't know what happened in that intervening time. I know I went into the light. And at this point, I'm going to describe a little bit more about what that light is like, at least with the, <laughs> with the limitation of words. Um, on one level, it's like a giant, endless ocean. On another level, it's like, it's almost like a, a river. Uh, and it's flowing. It flows from the heavenly realms into the lower worlds where we live. And that flow, okay, has basically, as I could see, it had two different aspects to it. One was the hue, the sound. You have to understand that the hue is a sort of a sacred sound. You can hear it with a cry of a long uh, a wolf or or cows or a whale or even a contented newborn baby. There's a certain pitch and tone to the hue that resonates with spirit. And I was able to see that, okay, that brilliant, loving light and as it flows. And what I was able to do is I wanted and it, this, it was all around me it was, and I was in it and it's hard to describe how that works, but I wanted to know what it was the core of that 
light. And the core of that light, and when I looked deep into it, I could see a, a almost like a tiny crystal, okay? Perfect crystal. And, you know, I, it almost looked like a diamond, but it wasn't a crystal. It was sort of like ice, but it wasn't ice and it wasn't a diamond. It's a perfect crystal. And what that crystal is, and you just see one, and what you see, it's almost like a snowflake. A snowflake is perfectly unique. There is no two snowflakes are alike. No two of those crystals are alike. Those are all who we are as, as human beings. Okay. We are, some people refer to it as soul. Okay. I call it a conscious state of awareness, but the essence of who we are at our core is life. It's, it's, it's of God. Now you can, God is a, a word that, you know, we have a tough time trying to figure out what exactly what that means, but God is that light. It's perfect in each of us at our core is that light. Now, a lot of us, including me, <laughs> get wrapped up in a whole bunch of other things that, you know, don't allow us to access that on any given time. But at the same time, that's what that light was. Um, that's how I saw it. And that's how I viewed it. Now, uh, I... That was the first day, first, you know, probably 24 hours, close to 24 hours of, of my journey. Now, it took me basically two years to recover from that. But the next day, you know, that later that day, about two hours after the nurse was there, the neurosurgeon, the head neurosurgeon of the spinal trauma unit came into my room and says, basically, he says, we don't, he says, we're amazed that you were able to survive. But in order for you to be able to live, what we have to do is reconnect your skull to your vertebrae. It's been, everything is, you know, we've done the MRIs. You have severe brainstem trauma. You're never going to be normal. You're always going to be paralyzed. You'll always be in pain. But at least if we reconnect it, you'll be able to live. If we don't do this surgery, you're going to die. That's exactly what he said. And you will absolutely die unless we do this surgery. And I looked at him. I said, well, he basically told me I was going to die yesterday. Uh, and that light there is way better than here. And I don't want to live a life being paralyzed and in pain. Because he told me that if I lived, I'd be paralyzed and in pain. So I refused the surgery. And he was really mad at me. I mean, really mad. He stormed out of the room. Uh, they kept me in a cervical collar, a very restrictive cervical collar. I was in that for four months. Uh, there was rehab involved. There, a lot of stuff were involved. I don't want to get into all the details of that. But I did go back to that surgeon eight months after the accident. I walked into his office, and uh, he didn't recognize me. I was already sitting in his office. The nurse had taken me in. He didn't recognize me at all. And he says, well, you're not my patient. I said, well, not right now. I said, I was eight months ago. And he looked at, started looking at my x-rays and he goes, oh, you're the guy. You're the, you're this guy. Who gave you surgery? And I said, nobody. He said, Don't you lie to me. He was furious. And he, uh, you know, he came over, he, pulled down and got behind me and pulled down my, uh, my shirt collar. Just, you know, he says, where's your scars at? I says, I didn't have any surgery. Don't you tell me. Oh, he was, he threw me out of his office. His ego <laughs> was, you know, he had made a diagnosis that I was going to die. There was no way that I could live as far as he was concerned. And obviously that didn't happen. And that sort of destroyed his own self worth or self view or whatever. And he took it out on me. Uh, but I've uh, pretty much recovered. You know, I don't have as much strength in my upper body and my shoulders and my arms as I, I don't have much grip strength as I did. This happened 17 years ago. 
uh, almost 18 years ago now. But I'm back to the point where uh, I can play golf. I can, I, I'm still working. I'm 71 years old. I'm still working and I have a good job. I make good money. Uh, I don't work a lot of hours, but people have a lot of confidence in me and I do a good job for them. But it's been a journey and a half. It really has. Um, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff to this. It goes way back to when, even when I was a little child, I, I learned how to sort of leave my body to escape trauma, you know, home trauma stuff that was going on. And, uh, that's when I learned, first learned about the, the white light and I would go into the white light and then white light would disappear and I would have to come back and it was always a painful journey coming back and that kind of stuff but I used to do it over and over again in my nighttime dreams that was one reason I recognized the light as well and as easily as I did it's, it's very loving it's perfect that's that's everybody's home everybody all of us will eventually at some point get back into that light in a permanent kind of a way and that's probably the greatest gift that I can share with everybody that who you are at your core is a perfect crystal representation of the God worlds. I first want to say, Joe, thank you for sharing your NDE experience with me. I appreciate that. I want to try to make it a little bit more clear for myself. Upon experiencing the light, did that give you the strength to resist having the surgery? Well, to be honest with you, the pain was so intense that the light was more attractive to me than living. Because <laughs> uh, I, you know, I literally, you know, I could feel that, you know, when, whenever you feel that love, there's nothing like it. Okay. And if you get a choice between permanent pain and paralysis, and I didn't want to be dependent on anybody. And I knew if I, you know, if, if I was paralyzed and I was in pain, then I, I didn't want to live. I would rather have died. I'd rather be in that light. I mean, mm -hmm. you love it, but at the same time, you, you like living. But if you, I had a choice and in my mind, now maybe it was because of all the drugs I was taking. I don't know. You know, or I was just sort of out of my mind, but I refused a surgery. And they, I mean, they would come in every day to my hospital. I was in intensive care for a week. Nurses would come in every day and try to, you know, reconvince me and try to convince me into having the surgery. And uh, and it wasn't just that one doctor. I mean, there was a whole bunch of people over the course of a week or so. Uh, but I slowly started to get some movement back, extremely painful. That the in order to recover, uh, I had a situation. Where what they did is they, they took me, uh, I was in a the rehab portion of the hospital and they put me in a wheelchair and they took me to a, uh, I called it, you know, the, the medical head doctor. I don't know what her name was. I can't remember, but uh, she said, we don't understand why you survive, but we have to face the facts that you're never going to be normal. And your brain has been seriously compromised. You have severe brainstem injury. So you're never going to be able to work. You're never going to be able to do any of these things. And I said, you know, I was really resistant. And I said, there's nothing wrong with my brain. Hmm. And she says, yes, there is. And uh, she says, I'm going to give you a test. It's a three-minute test. And at the end of this test, you'll know how bad your brain is. I said, what kind of test? She says, it's a very simple test. What I want you to do, and I'm going to, she says, I know you can't write or anything, and I have a piece of paper here I'm going to write down. I want you to give me every word that you can think of that starts with the letter D. I says, how many do you want? And she says, as many as you can give me. I'll give you three minutes. She says, can you do that? I says, sure. And she got her pen. She put a stopwatch down on the table, and she clicked it, and she said, okay, go ahead. I said, did, dog, and then I sit there, and, you know, my brain was almost like a, I was a gerbil, you know, in a 
just going around in a circle. My brain was just going everywhere, but and I couldn't I couldn't come up with one word past did and dog. And that was an extremely uh, emotionally challenging moment for me because I realized that my brain was done. You know, I wouldn't be able to do anything because at that time I had been a managing editor for a magazine. So writing and words were part of my, you know, my life. And, and I realized if in, and there's hundreds of words, thousands of words that start with D and I couldn't come up with any of them. So that, that was a really tough thing for me to do. And at the end of that, when they took me back to my room and they put me in my bed, the director of the rehab hospital came in and he says, he looked at me, he says, I understand that your test didn't go very well. And I says, yeah, you heard right. And he says, look, he says, we don't know how you survive. We don't know why you're alive. But one thing I can tell you, he says, right now you're getting lots of drugs. Uh, at that time I was getting, they were, was getting fentanyl every two hours and Percocets and Oxycontins in between. And he says, we understand, you know, we know that you can't live with that kind of pain. But what we do know that as long as you keep taking those drugs, you're never going to get any recovery process. You, you have to feel the pain in order to recover. He says, your injury is different than most injuries. Your injury is connected directly into your brainstem and it goes throughout your body. Those nerve endings, okay? And the pain, the most pain I had was from my shoulders, like both of them, all the way down, you know, to the end of my fingers and my fingers were numb. And I was, it was constant pain Okay, except when I took the drugs, it would reduce it somewhat. But he told me, he says, the only way you're going to be able to recover is to feel the pain. So he says, I know it's going to be hard to quit the drugs, but the only way you're going to be able to regain some of your functions is to quit the drugs. And when I got out of the hospital, that's exactly what I did. Uh, it was extremely painful. And he said, same doctor, what he said, he says, you're going to have to find a way to move your fingers and use your brain at the same time. And I said, what? He says, you're going to have to move your fingers and use your brain at the same time. And I said, what, what do you, how do I do that? He says, I don't know. He says, you're going to have to figure something out. And the way the nerve endings, C5, C6 ruptured discs, um, C2, C3 were real bad. C5, C6 were real bad. But what I did when I eventually got home, is they sent me home once I was able to walk. I still couldn't lift anything. I couldn't even lift one pound of anything. But I would sit on my computer in front of my computer, and I would try to type. And I, I couldn't maneuver my fingers where I wanted them to go, so I had to watch. So I was using my fingers you know, very slowly, but I was using them. And I would like, get on a website somewhere where I could talk about things that meant something to me. And, you know, spirituality is extremely important to me. So I would go to websites where they would talk about spiritual things. And I would also go, I'm a big Penn State football fan. I would go to uh, a Penn State page and, and read and one finger at a time type thing. I did that for months and months and months. And it used to be I could only do about five minutes at a time and the pain would get so intense I'd just black out because I had the computer right beside my bed. And But as time went on, I did more and more and more and more. I would try to make the times lapse uh, longer and longer. And that's what basically reconnected my my spinal cord, my nerve endings to the rest of my body. And I know that sounds weird, but that's pretty much how it worked because they, they sent, uh, there was a, a Harvard university found out about my situation, my recovery. 
and they sent a professor at, from Georgia State University uh, to my house. I did a long interview with him because they could not figure out what I had done that nobody else had ever been able to do before, kind of injuries that I had. Mm. Be able to walk and you know, recover and still be normal. It, did, it blew everybody's mind. And uh, I realized that was a long answer to your question, but that's, okay. that's sort of how that went. At the time of the accident, it appears that you believed in reincarnation. Do you still believe in that? It's, it's not a belief for me. It's a knowingness. It's sort of like, uh, do you believe in yesterday? You know, and you're going to say, well, yeah, yes, I don't have to believe in yesterday. It happened. I have very vivid memories of past lifetimes uh, in even connection with some of the same people I've known in this lifetime. Uh, reincarnation to me is not a, it's not a belief. It's, it's, it's sort of like mathematics. Do you believe in mathematics? Well, of course, you know, it, it works. <laughs> I know that sounds, you know, I don't want to be dismissive, but that's how deeply uh, aware I am of who I am as, as soul, as a conscious state of awareness, who I am as a conscious state of where has always been, it always will be. And I am connected in some way when I allow my, you know, conscious awareness throughout the day to focus on, on spirit and to allow spirit to guide me in whatever way it can. So reincarnation is extremely real to me. It's not a belief. It's a, it's a knowingness. I read in the magazine article that you published that at one time you were into Ekinkar. Yes. You, are you still practicing Ekinkar or still use some of their philosophy in your life? Yes, Ekinkar is a spiritual teaching. It's not really like a religion. Uh, religion teach, teach you to believe in things. Ekinkar teaches you techniques that you can access the spiritual realms. The singing hue is one of the things that, that they talk about a lot. And that's, it's a real simple thing. Ekinkar isn't like religions where you memorize and do a whole bunch of, of um, scripture passaging and all that kind of stuff. Now they, there's books written, been a lot of books written about it by some really great people. Uh, but it's not really a, it's not a religion in a normal sense. It's, it's a spiritual teaching that you, you can use to access the spiritual realms. That's probably the easiest way for me to describe it. But, you know, I've been doing that for you know, 50 years or so. How often are you still practicing singing Hugh? Every day, every morning. Uh, it's first, you know, after I get up and feed the critters, I have, I live in the country and I put food out for it and I get all kinds of, uh, animals and birds and everything else that come into my lawn. I take lots of gorgeous pictures. Of, I just like animals. They're fun. And after I feed the critters, first thing I do is every morning is I sing you and um, do that every day. We've done that every day for you know, many, 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 many years. Do you feel like the reality of being over there experiencing the light is more real than being here. Like here is the dream and that is the reality. I don't know if you call it a dream, but uh, the, the short answer to your question is yes. Okay. There's so much more there. It's, you know, it's in, we, we live in a finite world where there are limits to everything. There, there is no limits to anything. Everything is infinite. And what you do is you, you're able to experience that infinity. And the biggest part of that infinity is the love. And the love is something that you, uh, that you feel and you, I don't know. And once you feel it, then what you want to do is to give it. Okay. If you can, even get a little particle of it. And if you can share it with someone and, and you can see it in their eyes when they, they grasp something and it's almost like uh, 
it's like you're giving uh, a um, a piece of of something, a piece of of spirit, and they they take it into their hearts, and you can see it change them. Uh, and it can be as simple as talking to a waitress at a restaurant. Just uh, there are things that you do that you can do on a day-to-day basis. Everybody that you run into, if you you can say something that in some way, shape or form uh, enables their life to be better or more enjoyable or or, or something along that line. Helping someone who's in need, uh, just doing it out of the goodness of your heart without feeling that you deserve anything back, just giving giving of yourself. What inspires you about your experience? Pretty much the short answer to that question would be to share what I know with whoever is willing to listen. There are many people that I know in my life that really don't know anything about my history. And I don't necessarily tell a lot of people, um, I like to play golf, so I'm at the country club a lot. And there's a lot of people there. There's some people there that know what my history is, but a lot of people don't. But uh, if I'm talking to someone, we're having dinner or um, we're out on a golf course, and I was, you know, was playing golf this past weekend, and there was an elderly man there. He and I were riding in the same cart, and we were in a competition it was a, a big tournament and uh, he and I were, had been partnered up and he was real. We got to do this. We got to do that. He says, look, he says, we don't have to do anything. What you want to do is just to be able to play, you know, play one hole at a time. You play one shot at a time, knowing that you're doing your best and however it works out, whether it works out good and works out bad. If you've ever played golf, there's a lot of stuff that happens that isn't good. But just know that you've given it your best effort. Just enjoy that. And I said, I couldn't play golf for six years because of, you know, I hurt real bad in a car accident. I said, and just being able to play, you know, is a gift for me. And if I can share that gift with other people, it was just a simple thing. And I don't know how much of that he took to heart, but I was able to say it. Uh, so it's, a, it's, uh, you know, that's it's being able to share whatever the thing is in my life that can help somebody else look at life in a different perspective. Do you fear death at all? No, there's, there is no death. <laughs> I, I know that sounds strange, but, uh, you know, your physical body will discontinue to exist at some point. That's a fact. There's no two ways around that. But who you are, your state of consciousness, that never dies. Never. Uh, it just it doesn't. It it's it's part of it's part of life. It's part of infinity. It's part of uh, you can use the term God uh, or some other you know name that you've become accustomed to. Uh, there have been many great spiritual guides in, throughout the history of mankind. Some of them we know about, a lot of them we don't. But they've pointed the way, and it's up to us to, in the best way we can, uh, to follow those directions or to take advice. Uh, just a, a general way of, you know, do whatever little part I can do with who I run into on a day-to-day basis and share things with. Did you happen to see the spiritual guides or just hear them? And if you did, can you describe what they looked like? No, they, uh, it's, it's almost like, you know, I knew there were two. Okay. And I could see them, but they didn't have like facial features that you could recognize that I've ever seen in another place somewhere that I could, I could, you know, point it out. No, but I knew, I mean, they were there 
I, uh, they were very gentle, very kind, very loving. They could sense and feel the pain that I was in. And they, you know, it was, I was get, kept getting, getting the choice. Okay, you can go if you want, or you can stay if you want. If you stay in your physical body, it's going to be extremely painful. And I was told that again and again and again. Um, and I chose to come back. But I couldn't tell you what, as far as what they look like. Uh, no, I, I, I really can't describe it. I mean, I can see it in my mind, but I, I even if I was an artist and I'm not, <laughs> I couldn't, uh, I couldn't draw you a picture. During your life, people that you've known has probably died since that accident and possibly even family members or friends. Since you know what it's like on the other side, how do you personally offer the surviving family members condolences? Do you let them know what it's really like on the other side or you just kind of stay quiet and, you know, because they may not understand what you've been through or what? I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, about 35, 30, 37 years ago, my, my brother was killed in a car accident. Okay. And I was at the funeral with other family members and his wife uh, was there and we started to talk and she came over and I held her hand and she said, you know, she said, well, you have a warm touch. And she says, it feels so comforting. And then she would talk to other people, you know, that were there. And she kept coming back over to me and she would hold my hand. And she said, every time I touch you or feel you, uh, the warmth comes back in my body and I, I quit shaking. And uh, that was, you know, I remember that very clearly. Uh, the, uh, you know, my, my parents have both passed away. Um, my mother, it was a strange situation with my mother, unusual situation. Can't say strange. She had had, she was 86 years old and, uh, she had had a series of strokes and she eventually went into some type of semi-conscious state and she was that way for several days. And well, different family members came in, different friends of hers came in to see her. And uh, this went on for several days and the hospice was taking care of her and hospice said, and they said to me, she says, what, uh, there has to be somebody that she needs to see. Who, who do you know? She's hanging on for some reason. And I don't know. They said, we don't know what the reason is but she's hanging on. She should have passed by now. And uh, when my mother was in her, um, in her seventies, I, I, I got a, a golden retriever and I took it to her. And she, first she said she didn't want, you know, want any dogs because too painful when they leave. And, and I left at the house for a few couple weeks. And she said, and then she asked me, she says, can I keep Toby? And I said, sure. And um, she really had a connection with Toby, the golden retriever, gorgeous dog, you know, very gentle, typical golden retriever. And when I had left the, uh, I left a nursing home at the hospice and I went home, I thought, well, maybe she wants to see Toby. So I went and I got Toby and I took Toby and they let me take the dog into the nursing uh, home and, uh, and I took her hand and I, and she could move it a little bit. And I put it on Toby's head and Toby gave her a little kiss at one of those licks that dogs do. And uh, I was there for maybe 10 or 15 minutes with Toby and I left. And before I even, got Toby back home. It wasn't even 10 minutes later. I got a call from the, from the home that, uh, she had passed. So 
you know, I have a, in many ways, I have a kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, some kind of, I get messages and they don't come like a, you know, like a message across your board. It just, I, I sense things and I'm able to do different things. And, and a, another example, speaking of Toby and my mother, um, my mother passed away. It's been about eight years ago now. Toby, uh, and I took care of the whole time passed when he was about almost 16 years old and not too long after, uh, I was able to, uh, I had a dream and in the dream, my mother was there and she was sitting in a chair and Toby came, Toby was there and Toby saw me and he jumped up on me and he was loving me and kissing me and, and both my mother and Toby were there. Uh, now it was a dream, but it was a very, very vivid, lucid dream. And, uh, does that mean uh, there's one more I got to tell you. This 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 is a blockbuster. Um, I mentioned to you that as a child went through some tra- trauma situations and I was leaving my body a lot. My first, literally, my first memory in life was my dad was coming into the bedroom, and I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was going to get a beating. So what I did is he was walking close to the bed. I literally left my body and I went flying off into the universe. And I went to this place with beautiful flowers and trees and all these really nice people. And and I hung out there for a while. And then I popped back into my body. And my father was leaving the room after he had given me a beating. And I said to him, okay, under my voice, under, you know, that he couldn't hear. But I said, see, you can't hurt me. I can leave anytime I want. So I had already learned, and I was probably about three or two or three years old at the time. I had already learned how to leave my body. Apparently he had done that before. So leaving my body, okay, and experiencing the inner worlds was something that I had become very familiar with. Now, one of the, I talked earlier about the nurse and what I had to do was not only forgive her, but to be grateful for her participation in my journey. If I wouldn't have known how to leave my body when I needed to leave it, okay, I'd have never survived that accident. No way. But I did know. And the reason that I knew is because I had been taught in one way, shape, or form by my father, how to leave my body. Before my father passed away, I went to him. He was mowing the lawn, and I stopped him, and I said to him, I said, I want to thank you for everything. This was about a year after my accident. I want to thank you for everything. And I said, I mean everything. Because I had learned, however painful it was, through that, those episodes when I was a child, I had learned how to leave my body. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be here. So I expressed my gratitude to my father because I had learned that from the accident. And about a year after my dad passed away, again, I had a very vivid dream. And in that dream, I went up into the inner worlds and my father was there in a very dirty, ugly place and he had to work and he was working and he was ugly and he was dirty and he just wanted to be able to clean himself up. And there was a bathtub there. I looked into the bathtub and he looked into the bathtub and he says, I can't get in there. And the bottom of the bathtub was covered with really sharp shards of glass hundreds of pieces of this glass and he couldn't get into the tub to give himself a bath. So what I did was I looked at him, I looked down at the bathtub. So I reached into the bathtub 
and I took out every piece of glass in that tub until it was perfectly clean. So then he looked at me in a dream. He had this big smile on his face because now he knew how to clean him. He knew he had to clean himself up. I didn't clean him, but I gave him the opportunity to clean himself up so he could get out of wherever he was at. He was in a not so nice place, very ugly place. But uh, that was, uh, you know, that was a big deal to me, uh, being able to help him do that. If someone wanted to take some type of spiritual training, would you recommend them Akankar or some other type of spiritual training? Well, that depends on the person. It depends on their background. Akankar is just like not everybody's for Christianity and not everybody's for Muslim and everybody's different. Uh, everybody has to do what their instincts tell them to do. I had known how to get out of my body uh, when I was really young, and I didn't do a whole lot, but I did it. And then I had a, an experience one time where I I left my body, and at the time I was an atheist. I grew up as a Roman Catholic. I was I went to church all the time, learned the, the Bible, learned the gospel. I could do the entire mass in English or Latin. Uh, but I had got away from Christianity and away from Catholicism because it, it's too much power, too much control, too much shame, too much guilt. A lot of that stuff involved in, in what I perceived to be religious training. Uh, I even spent a little time in seminary and I just got completely away from that. And, uh, and then one time I had a, another out of complete total beyond beyond life out of body experience into the future. I saw a whole bunch. That's a whole different story. I saw a whole bunch of different things. And when I came back, I realized that, Hey, this atheism stuff, this isn't, that's not real because what there's a lot out there. I don't know what it is. It's not like I was taught in, you know, as a Catholic or as a Christian, but there's a, there's a beautiful universe out there because I was taken and I was shown it. And on the way back from that journey, you know, I was saying, well, little Joe Holmesy from Bellwood, Pennsylvania is not supposed to know all this stuff. I mean, I, it freaked me out, to be honest with you, all the stuff I saw. I saw a lot of the future. A lot of the stuff, future I saw, this was over 50 years ago. A lot of the future I saw has already come to pass, and there's a lot of it's happening right now. I saw this stuff a long time ago. But what I had to do when I came back is I had to be honest with myself. And this atheism thing wasn't going to cut it. But at the same time, I couldn't go back to what I had done. And then one day, some guy literally knocked on my door and uh, we started to talk. And he said, talked about something called soul travel. And I thought, well, I know what that is. <laughs> because I had... I had never termed it that, but that's sort of like what had happened to me. I said, how do you do that? And he, he uh, showed me how to sing you, real simple instructions. But as soon, the very first time I sang you, I could see all these waves coming. And it's the same waves I used to see as a kid. Uh, I could see these waves coming and I just travel through them and I'd, I'd go into the inner worlds. I realize I'm getting pretty far off the track here from, but at the same time, it's not off track. It's the same thing. You know, moving into the spiritual realms is something you can do without having to die, without having to be having near death experience. Moving into the spiritual realms consciously is something that any person, if they have the desire to do so, can do. I didn't ask you before we got started, but do you have anything that you would like to promote, like a website or a book or anything? Well, I'm in the process of writing a book now about my experience. The title of the book is going to be, Have You Made Arrangements to Donate Your Organs? Now, that book's going to be a lot more detailed than what I just gave here today about some of the things that happened to me during that process. Uh, that will be a book that I will be publishing sometime here in the next year or two, I would guess. Uh, I have on 
Facebook, I have a Force 2012. Uh, I have a website on Facebook. If people get on Facebook, they can read some of the experiences, a little bit more detail of what I've just gave them here today. Uh, there's different stuff on there. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share these you said, process with people. Are you saying your Facebook page is called Force 2012? Yeah, F-O-R-C-E 2012. All right. Uh, Force 2012. If people yeah. want to, you know, reach out to you and ask you questions or chit-chat with you, yeah. should they, they do it from do your page? Yeah, they could do it that way, yes. All right, Joe, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Know that who you are is a conscious state of awareness, is eternal. You will, when this body that you're living in right now, when it ceases to exist, you don't cease to exist. You will move into the higher worlds. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Where in the higher worlds you go, that's going to be up to you and how you live your life and how you deal with people on a day-to-day basis. Joe, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest today. I wish you the best. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.